You're listening to This Nazarene Life, stories of young Nazarene clergy and their role models. TNL is a production of Young Clergy Network committed to listening to, collaborating with, and empowering young pastors over at youngclergy.net. This episode is sponsored by the Nazarene Student Center at the University of Oklahoma. Committed to sharing Christ's love with the students at OU, the OUNSC is meeting them wherever they are. Check them out at OUNSC.org. Today on the podcast, Reverend Mikhail Levine, pastor of spiritual formation at Midtown Church of the Nazarene in Oklahoma City. Thanks for all you do for young pastors, and thanks for tuning in. and I'm here with my guest, Mikhail Levine. Mikhail is the pastor of spiritual formation over at Midtown Church of the Nazarene. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So the first question I ask everybody is, how did you end up in the Church of the Nazarene? So my parents uh, have always had me in the Church of the Nazarene, so that's (laughs) the basic answer. Right. Beyond that, um, Three of my four grandparents went to Nazarene universities. Wow. Well, colleges then. Mm-hmm. Um, Eastern Nazarene College and Olivet mm-hmm. Nazarene College. And um, so my mom's dad um, ended up having a pretty significant conversion experience while he was serving in the Navy. Mm-hmm. Went to Olivet on the GI Bill and um, then like was called into ministry and so served decades as a pastor, had my mom as the third of seven kids. And um, of those, I think four, four serve in some kind of ministry or are married into ministry. Wow. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's, the force is heavy in right. our family. <laughs> Um, and then on my dad's side, um, um, my grandfather actually was born into Swedish family that, um, my great, great grandparents came from Sweden, um, and started what is now the, uh, evangelical table, um, denomination, but it was the Swedish covenant. Um, yeah. So, uh, I'm not exactly sure how my grandfather came into the Church of Nazarene. My grandmother went to school at ENC. Mm. They met after the fact and were always a part of uh, a local church, Youngstown Church of the Nazarene in Northeast Ohio, where my dad grew up. And um, funny side side story that will come to play later, um, a very um, influential person in my dad's life in Youngstown Church of the Nazarene was... uh, female pastor that served there for quite a few years and um and so I think that has somewhat to do of where I am now because of my dad watching her and receiving leadership from her Mm -hmm. my grandmother was also um his mom uh was a great Sunday school teacher for Mm -hmm. a year like decades actually and um at another time may have been led into more full-time vocational ministry. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was a she was a minister in her in her way, yeah. you know. Um so then my parents met at Mount Vernon Nazarene College, okay. now university, 
And um, so they they just always kind of were Nazarenes. And then my dad uh, really struggled through his own call of vocational ministry mm. and um, uh, eventually became um, went to seminary out of college and had some time in business before that, but that all kind of fell apart as God was leading mm-hmm. him to the next thing. And they spent 10 years as traveling evangelists in the Church of the Nazarene. Wow. And started when I was two up until I was 12. Wow. And uh, so, yeah, that was quite an upbringing. <laughs> we, can, we can talk about that some <laughs> if you want. And then when I was 12, my dad uh, really felt God calling him. He went back home to Youngstown, Ohio for um, a reunion for his Mm. high school Mm -hmm. and just really felt God calling him back home Mm. to be a pastor in his hometown and start a new church. Mm. And so we moved and I started public school. Uh, I was homeschooled all the way through. Oh, wow. And started public school and Mm. uh, started this new church. And so really, like, my dad and my mom both had this very firm belief that we were were always a ministry family. Like, we Mm. traveled on the road together. My brother and I were just part and parcel. You know, Mm. it was our thing, too. And it was the same with the planting the church. And so... From very early, I mean, 12, 13, 14, I was involved. Mm. I was did everything from puppets to running sound to cleaning up and tearing down and being in the nursery and uh, leading worship and, like, you know, the whole kit and caboodle and was sitting in on prayer meetings at our home and small group meetings and all that kind of stuff. And so I was just included. And... Knew, I mean, from high school, knew that I was going to go into ministry. And Mm. I think part of that was that I never um, imagined that I could do anything else because I didn't know what else there was to do. (laughs) (laughs) Like, isn't this what everybody does? Right, right. Um, Yeah, so I um, then had my own experience of call as, you know, as a part of that too. But... Um, always felt like church was just like a second home Mm. and Church of the Nazarene was the only church that I knew. I mean, I knew there were other churches, but these were my people, Yeah, you know? And so I never really had reason to think about being a part of another church. Mm. Um, When I went to seminary, I kind of revisited that and made a decision that no this is these are my people because I grew up in it but now these are my people because I want them to be my people Mm, I love that we'll kind of unpack the the call to ministry story for me yeah so in high school I think it was becoming clearer Mm. that I was recognized as a leader in church and my dad um my dad was really intentional in telling me and, and like pulling out these little nuggets of like leadership teaching. We'd mm. be driving in the car somewhere and he'd be like, Okay, Mikhail, here's here's a here's a next little tidbit or here's a leadership <laughs> lesson, you know. <laughs> Always very intentional about that. And so he spoke into me quite a lot about mm. what he saw and what I could do and so I had lots of opportunities. 
Um, but what I didn't have was I, even though my dad would talk about it, um, would even share some of his own stories of his pa- childhood pastor who mm. was a, a woman. I didn't see that. Mm. I didn't know any yeah. women pastors. And so although I understood that I had this call to ministry and I had this call to serve in the church, for whatever reason, there was a disconnect between Mm -hmm. that and being a pastor for several reasons. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, I think only one reason, that I didn't see any women doing it. Yeah. Um, My mom worked from, well, she was a stay-at-home mom most of my life because Mm -hmm. I was like, you know, she homeschooled us when we were on the road. Right. But she was a partner in ministry, but she never did like the preaching or, you know, she sang and did a whole bunch of other stuff. Mm -hmm. So uh, as I went to college then at Mount Vernon Nazarene um, also, I didn't really know what I would study. I, I kind of thought that I didn't need a degree in ministry because I didn't see myself doing anything in the church that I hadn't already done and didn't know how to do, mm-hmm. which even saying it out loud sounds very arrogant at the age of sure. 18, 19. <laughs> right. But I kind of saw myself as like a perpetual small group leader <laughs> <laughs> or um, Sunday school teacher or, you know, youth group sponsor. And I was like, mm. you know how to do those things. I know how to do those things. Yeah. So why do I need a degree? Right, right, in right. That? I've been doing that for like seven years already. (laughs) So um, really kind of um, had this internal battle about what to study. And my Mm. freshman year, one of my friends and and, uh, sweet mates was an educational ministries major and was talking to me about this like entry-level class, like the class that everybody has to take about spiritual development and stuff like that. And I loved everything that she was saying. Mm. And I wanted to read her books, and I wanted, and I was like, hmm, maybe this is a sign that Aww. that's where I should go. So I did, and even in that, though, I was oddly, firmly against being a religion and theology major. Hmm. I was really kind of snooty, mm. and um, again, I'm not exactly sure why. I think I had a poor understanding of what that actually was. And even though my dad went to seminary, um, you know, my my grandfather went to seminary and was a pastor, we were not an anti-intellectual family mm-hmm. by any means. But for some reason, I had a negative idea of studying theology and going to seminary as like the, I heard a lot of like, well, seminary is cemetery mm. kind of thing, which yeah. now totally makes me mad. Yeah. <laughs> I hate sure. it when people say that. <laughs> right. Um, but I guess I just, I didn't have, I hadn't experienced and I didn't have um, a good understanding of how it was life-giving and necessary. Mm. And I think a lot of that just had to do with the fact that I didn't, I, I, I think all of it was right there in front of me. I didn't have the questions to ask or wasn't engaged in those conversations. And so mm. I don't know where that assumption came from. But it wasn't until my... Um, probably late in my junior, early in my senior year of college, where I started, my major required upper upper level Bible courses. And I was like, where has this been all my life? <laughs> <laughs> this is the best thing ever. Aww. I'm like writing exegetical papers and 
us, you know, <laughs> like actually digging in and like talking about what did Paul mean mm. and wisdom literature, like, and the fact that there was another language that you could like delve into, that it wasn't all just in English. I mean, I knew that it wasn't, but getting even the taste of Hebrew and Greek, it mm. ignited something in me that I was totally unaware of. Mm. So I think another part of my earlier not wanting to be super intellectual or, you know, study those things in depth was actually not fully knowing myself mm. and not giving myself license to do what I actually enjoyed doing, yeah. which was really study deep. And mm. so once I got that opportunity, um, a whole lot of other things, you know, became were options on the table that hadn't been before. Simultaneously, through my degree program, you know, I um, was an intern uh, for, for all of those years. And so the first couple of years, I didn't know exactly what I was doing in ministry. So I don't fault anyone for sticking me with, that sounds bad, but <laughs> I don't fault anyone for like putting me with kids because they didn't know what else to do with me sure. or with, you know, the drama team of the youth group. I didn't, I didn't know how to ask for anything else and mm. I wasn't able to articulate, but it was kind of like being a glorified volunteer. Right. And it wasn't teaching me anything and it didn't give me a view of the church that was anything different than what I had already had. Sure. The summer in between my junior and senior year, I went to Germany and served with uh, Pastor Hans Jürgen Zimmermann, mm. and um, who was then at the Hügelstrasser Church of the Nazarene in Frankfurt. And I had gotten connected through a team that went in spring break and you know that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I just loved the vision of what they were doing there. Yeah. He had a very particular vision of being a neighborhood church and making the people in his neighborhood aware of and just like not playing around like we are gonna make every effort to get to know our neighbors Mm. and we're gonna go on prayer walks up and down their streets and we're gonna put flyers invitations in their mailboxes and we're gonna have these events all throughout the summer and it it sparked something in me that was like man if we really take seriously our call in the world as the church. Mm. Wouldn't it look a little bit more like (laughs) this? (laughs) And I came back um, and was talking with one of my mentors, um, who I'd love to have you interview at some point, by Mm -hmm. the way, just putting that in there. Love that. Um, Joe Noonan, who is now the chaplain at Mount Vernon Nazarene University. Okay. He was, uh, was kind of a mentor to me in this whole time. And So I sat down with him and I was like, I have experienced this way of doing church Mm. and I feel like it's ruined me Mm. because now I don't want to, I don't, like I'm bored Yeah, and it feels pointless. Mm. And um, he was like, well, I, I know someone that is starting a church um, who feels a lot of the same ways that you do. Mm. And so there was um, a graduate who had gone out a couple of years. I think he was like four or five years ahead of me and had been living on the west side of Mount Vernon. It was definitely the poor side of town. A lot Mm. of um, blue-collar or (laughs) no-collar, no-working poor people. And and he took very seriously a call for um, incarnational ministry and lived there and was working to start a church. Mm. And so I interned with him 
and then ended up serving there for um, a total of four years. Wow. So I say all of that as part of my call because there was this convergence in my senior year of college where I was experiencing a way of doing church that um, I had never done before, but it was totally, I could see myself actually pastoring in that way Mm. or something closer to being a pastor than I had ever imagined before. Kevin Peterson, the pastor there, gave me opportunities to preach. Mm. I was simultaneously loving my Bible classes. And so I just felt like there was this convergence of like, wow, maybe there's more to this than I had originally (laughs) thought. One of the people who was a part of our church um, was Dr. Alex Varighese, Mm. who was one of my Bible professors at Mount Vernon Nazarene University. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember him after one of the sermons that I preached, which I was like totally like, I think, I don't even know. I think it was probably a terrible sermon (laughs) (laughs) Um, in retrospect. But I asked him, you know, to, I asked him to have a conversation with me after the fact and tell Mm -hmm. me feedback and, you know, I wanted to learn and what did he think? And, and that was the first time that anyone really sat me down and said, Michaela, I think you should go to seminary. Mm. And I was like, really? And he was like, yeah, yeah, I think that you should. I think that this is what I see in you. Mm. And, and so both him and then Kevin Peterson, as I was um, kind of Interning or interning and associate pastoring with him was also asking me these same questions. So I just put it out there to God and was like, well, we'll see. You know, uh, my husband graduated from SNU, Southern Nazarene University, a year before I graduated from Mount Vernon, and he was living and working in Washington, D.C. Um, and so we ha- were not engaged yet. Um, he was l- literally driving back and forth from Mount Vernon to D.C. every weekend, like wow. six hours one way. Wow. <laughs> That's love for you, I guess, Aww. or desperation. <laughs> <laughs> um, loneliness. But um, so we just started praying about it. And I had always kind of assumed that once I graduated, I would move down there where his career was. And yeah. But started praying about it and found out about um, an opportunity at Ashland Theological Seminary, mm. also in Ohio, where they were uh, the recipients of a scholarship from the Kern Family Foundation that literally sent aspiring pastors to seminary for free. Wow. Yeah. And there were a couple stipulations. Um, you know, their desire, the Kern Family Foundation's desire is to put pastors in the local church because they feel like that is the best way to affect character change within American culture, Hmm. and that's their goal. Um, And so they have a couple different stipulations about who they will fund to go Mm -hmm. to seminary. Um, So I, you know, filled out this application and was, I just kind of, that was the only seminary that I applied to. And I I just said, God, if you want me to go to seminary, then I'll go if you let me go for free. (laughs) (laughs) And, um... Didn't know what Brent would do for a job Mm. if that happened. Had no idea because he had kind of landed like the dream job out of college in Washington, D.C. And yet God made it happen. And so I uh, went to Ashland Theological Seminary still not fully embracing this call to pastor. I Mm. felt like I was 
on a path of deciding or understanding more what it what ministry looked like. Mm. But I, there was a lot of fear and hesitancy with whole, this whole like pastor thing. God worked out all of the details of Brent moving and his job. I mean, it was just like miraculous. And that's a wow. whole other story of just God going before in every feasible, imaginable way. That's awesome. So I was able to stay working with Kevin and Westside Church of the Nazarene as associate pastor all during my seminary time. And um, I think it was like my second year of seminary. Two things happened. Well, maybe one was my second year. One was my third year. So one was um, in our second year, we had this cohort year where um, a lot of really significant classes and the the thrust of the program was um, our own spiritual formation in addition, obviously, to our education. Mm-hmm. But they wanted to get through to us, like, you are going to be a minister and that's going to require all of you. Mm-hmm. And we want you to be on a path of God healing and transforming all of you so that you can minister well. That's great. Yeah, it was awesome. And so as a part of that, they really... Um, they really pushed counseling mm. and in particular inner healing prayer counseling, which is where you sit down. There might be a different name for it in different circles, but at that time, that's what we called it. And so you sit down with a trained person. It's a little bit of a blend of like um, counseling and spiritual directing with some like Ignatian spiritual exercises of contemplative prayer Ooh, all rolled that. into one. Ooh. Yeah. So you sit down with a counselor and you invite Jesus into the space, and the counselor helps walk you through a conversation with Jesus. Wow. Basically. And so in one of those times, um, I just came in with so much fear. And um, and at the beginning of every session, you allow Jesus to take you where he wants you to go and like talk to you. And so Jesus is setting the agenda and not you or the wow. counselor. Mm-hmm. And so he took me to this place and showed me um, basically that my fear of failure was paralyzing me. Mm. Yeah, it's it's still such a fresh and emotional mm. experience. Um, when I when I think about it, it's like it's all fresh again. Mm. But it was so beautiful and perfect and so Jesus because um, he invited me to do something with him. Um, something as simple as like we we were on this river, you know, and he invited me to, <laughs> silly, skip a rock across the river. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Jesus, I, I've never actually been able to do that. Yeah. I don't, I don't skip rocks. Yeah. <laughs> and he was like, no, you can, you can do it. And I was like, Jesus, I'm, I'm just not going to do it because every time I pick up a rock, it just plunks in the water. Yeah. And he really urged me. And so I was like, fine, whatever. So he he picked up the rock first and he was like, look, this is how you do it. And he just kind of flung it with his wrist and it skipped like three times. Mm. And I was like, well, I'm pretty sure that it's just going to plunk in the water because it does every time. But okay, I'll give it a shot. And it worked. Wow. And it skipped. And I had this like, oh my gosh, I just did that. And I like Jesus and I looked at each other. And he was like, yeah, see? And he go, and then he got real serious. And he was like, Mikhail, you have to trust me mm. that any time I ask you to do something you haven't done before, 
I will teach you how to do it. Oh. Wow. And I couldn't say no. Yeah. Anymore. And I realized that the struggle I was having in determining my call or my job was completely based on the boundaries that I was placing on myself and the mostly the fear mm. that I had, the fear of failure, yeah. uh, the fear of not being enough or not knowing enough. I didn't want to be the person in charge. I didn't want to be the person like making all these decisions or like having people's salvation and spirituality rest on my shoulders. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like I was terrified of all of those things. And then um, after that experience, it felt completely different. And I knew that if God someday called me to be a pastor of anything or, heaven forbid, God called me to be a lead pastor at some point, I I couldn't say no. It was like he was saying, you need to stop boxing me in with what I'm allowed to ask you to do. Mm. So that was a big turning point. And another one was um, a peer, a a fellow student. One time we were on a trip. an educational trip to Greece, and we each had to take turns like leading devotions based on Paul's letters of where we were at that point. Ooh. Yeah, it was cool. Um, and so I, I don't remember exactly um, what I said in my devotional, mm-hmm. um, but someone from that trip came to me, an, an older man, actually. He was an older student. He was coming to seminary later in life, and he made a point to sit with me on the bus next time Aww. we were together and said, I know, he, because he had had some time in the Church of the Nazarene as well, and he said, I know that when I was in the Church of the Nazarene, I didn't know many women pastors. I don't know if you did or not either, and I said no. And he said, I want you to know that I think you will make a great pastor. Ugh. And he said that devotional you led was very pastoral Mm. and it was really good and it spoke to me and he said I don't usually say things like this but I feel like this is what God wanted me to tell you and so you know just another one like Jesus is going in case you haven't heard right (laughs) I'm trying to get it through to you that I have something for you so I did by the time I left seminary I had kind of embraced this idea, this call to pastor, and I fell in love with um, the work of pastor, and I fell in love with what it meant to be pastor, and I was pretty enthralled with it, actually. Mm. Not to say that I wasn't intimidated or fearful sure, or n- had no idea what that was actually going to look like in the long run. Um, but yeah, now I'm like, good golly, I, it's funny to me to think that I thought that I wouldn't ever be or didn't want to be a pastor because now I'm like, what else would I do with my life? Like, this is what I was born to do. Of course I'm a pastor. Yeah. How could I think not? Well, continue the the kind of thread of that journey. So you're at seminary, you graduate seminary. What happens next? So um, Brent and I both finished our master's about within, within a year of each other. And his work paid for his. Wow. And I got that foundation scholarship to pay for mine. Mm-hmm. And we had so little expenses uh, at that point in time. We, were, we had been saving a lot of money. Um, and so 
we kind of looked at our lives and we're like, we don't have kids. We don't have a house payment. We were renting. We don't have car payments. We owned our cars. Like, let's go do something crazy. Yes. <laughs> and so we, um, and before we got married, we had both um, talked about spending a year outside of the country but decided that we wanted to get married and figure out a way to do that together. And so once we were done with our degrees, we'd been married um, three years or four, four years, and um, decided to just kind of see what was available. So we started putting our name out there through, you know, the Nazarene circles and talked with several different missionaries in various places about where we could come volunteer and Mm -hmm. for whatever reason nothing really like clicked Mm. it was a little bit of a struggle for us we had been through the process for about six months and we're confused about like I don't know what what do we we felt like this urge and then nothing really seems like it's working what do we do yeah and um so we eventually got connected to because Brent went to school out here at Southern Naz University, he called friends and said, hey, do you know of anything? And lo and behold, they did. They were a part of Bethany First Church of the Nazarene. And um, they were like, well, as it so happens, just this past Sunday, Pastor David Busick was talking about our partnership with Swaziland and how we need on-site coordinators to go live there. Wow. <laughs> and, and so the friend was like, is that something you think you're interested in? And Brent was like, well, I don't know what you're talking about, but we're kind of just looking for anything, so sure. Mm-hmm. So um, that was like at the end of December um, in 2009, and pretty sure that um, – Barbie Moore, her first day on the job as global outreach director at Bethany First Church of the Nazarene, <laughs> January 3rd or whatever date it was in 2010, picked up the phone and called us. Like, wow. we were her first and only lead, I think. I love it. And so she called us right away and started the conversation about what it would look like to live in Swaziland for a year. And the partnership had just begun at that mm. point. And so they were looking for people that could really um, – come in and build relationships and set a foundation for where they wanted the partnership to go. There was already a couple, a retired couple that had been living there, but they had to leave early for medical reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we would be the first people to be there for a full year. And um, so anyway, we went through kind of a short um, interview process. I mean, my big question was, you know, you're asking people to come, like, represent you but we're not really a part of you. <laughs> so like, is that okay? How does that work? Right. And um, and I remember David Busick being like, no, I think you'll represent us just fine. Yeah. Like we're not, this isn't so much about Bethany First Church of the Nazarene as mm. it is about the Church of the Nazarene. Oh, I love that. And the kingdom of God. Yeah. And so we, so literally the first time we heard about this was in January of 2010. And we were, on the ground in May. <gasps> wow. Yeah. It was a pretty quick process. Mm. And then we lived there for a year. Mm-hmm. And we were, uh, at, it was like, it's crazy that it was only a year because it's such a formational time. Yeah. And now we've been back seven years. Wow. It still feels like for as much happened in us and as much happened in Swaziland while we were there, it feels like it should be more than just a year of our yeah. lives. But, um 
So got to do a whole lot of traveling and preaching and development work, um, mostly development of relationships. Mm-hmm. And yes, some economic development work as well, working with grants and um, Nazarene Compassionate Ministries and all kinds of stuff. But um, goodness, learned just a ton, a ton, a ton, and fell in love Aww. with people who taught us and embraced us, have a Swazi name, Aww. which is Nomsa Mamba, Aww. and uh, they just adopted us. Ugh. Love, love my family there. And when our time was wrapping up, we were really like, now what do we do? You know, like, this has been so good, and what's next? And thought about moving back to Ohio and coming back to our church in Mount Vernon and love the people there, but just didn't feel like that was right. Didn't Mm -hmm. know. Uh, Brent had taken a leave of absence from his work, but didn't really feel solid about returning Mm -hmm. to that same job. And so, um, yeah, just really kind of put it out there. And towards the end of that time, um, started communicating more. I mean, we had been working in very close relationship with Bethany First Church of the Nazarene and Southern Nazarene University. And in the last, like, two months, I guess, um, that we were there, David Busick started talking with me about what it would look like for me to come back and join them on staff. Wow. And there wasn't really a particular position that was open Mm -hmm. at that time. Um, but he was a firm believer in the whole, like, you get the right people on the bus and then you find them the right seat kind yeah, of thing. I like that. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, he was like, I, I know that there are things that we want to accomplish that no one is, no one has time and energy to give to yet. Mm-hmm. And those might be your things, but let's wait and see. And so we, we were in conversations for about a month or two and then came to interview when we came back from um, Swaziland. Uh, And then I ended up starting there in August of 2000. So we were in Swaziland in 2009. Mm -hmm. We came in May of 2009, left in June of 2010. Mm -hmm. And then I started at um, Bethany First Church in August of 2010, which is almost seven years ago now. Wow. And my job was pastor of equipping Ministries, uh, which meant that I was, um, at that time, they they had like this fourfold plan of discipleship, which is worshiping, serving, sharing, and connecting, or, oh dear, I'm sorry, David. (laughs) (laughs) And everyone else that I was on staff with, I can't believe. Well... My part was serving, so I know what that one was really well. There you go, there you go. Oh, no, this is so embarrassing. It'll come to you. Just keep going. Okay. So uh, they didn't have a really, like, solid way to connect people into ministry. Yeah. And uh, grow. Worship, serve, grow, share. There it is. There it is. That was (laughs) just redeemed myself. Um, So I was really tasked, like, with, okay, how do we start developing a culture of of service in mm. a way that everyone, like, it's just natural. Like, what do you do? Oh, I do this. Yeah. And how do we get people to that place? So That's spent great. quite a bit of time trying to learn the environment of the church and... Because um, you've never been there. No. <laughs> well, I had visited. Okay. Uh, and we were the... Um, I was the, like, world evangelism 
they call it Faith Promise Sunday mm. um, speaker the oh. year that we were in Swaziland. Oh. So I had some familiarity mm-hmm. with the church. We came and like talked about what God was doing in Swaziland, mm-hmm. you know. Okay. Um, but yeah, was not a part of the culture right. for sure. So it was a huge learning curve, but such a great team to work with. Aww. So, so, so good. And people were really welcoming and excited to have um, to have me there. And mm. yeah, it was awesome. So took a while to figure out what that would look like and started developing a plan and a program to set in motion, was able to get some things started, but wasn't like fully able to unwrap, unfurl the whole like kit and caboodle. Mm-hmm. And then David Busick went to Nazarene Theological Seminary. Right. Okay. Um, and so a whole lot of things changed yeah. and I was kind of like, well, in this limbo in between, you know, our interim pastor and, um, because it was kind of a, a, it would be, it would change a whole lot of dynamics about what happened in a whole bunch of other ministry areas. Mm-hmm. You know, it was kind of a shift for everyone. Yeah. And so had to put it on hold for a little while, but during the interim process, I, um, several of us, like four of us pastors, uh, preached on a rotation. Ooh. Um, and that was really great. So probably that's, I mean, Pastor Busick had me preaching on like a fairly regular basis anyway. Mm-hmm. And then during that time, got to do it on a more frequent basis. Yeah. And, um, and that was awesome. Just the process of learning and leading and being a part of a teaching team mm-hmm. uh, was so, so good. So when uh, Pastor Rick Harvey came then in 2011 or 12, I think it was 12, we, you know, a, a new pastor looks at the whole vision and yeah. there was some shuffling that was done. Um, one of our, a couple of our other pastors left and took other jobs during that time. And mm-hmm. so when the dust settled, he asked if I would move into the area of discipleship ministry, mm-hmm. which is funny that I forgot the grow quadrant, piece of the quadrant, because that's what I then became <laughs> in charge you know of. We'll, we'll forgive you. We still love you. So um, then the last uh, four years that I was there, I oversaw all of our Sunday schools and um, Wednesday night curriculum, spiritual development, all mm-hmm. of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And as a part of that, wrote for uh, a weekly devotional, wrote daily devotionals mm-hmm. every week that went along with the sermon. That had been set in motion with the pastor before me, Jason Rowinski, actually. Oh. Yeah. Um, and so just kind of really, again, enjoyed being a part of a group that was moving in the same direction toward mm-hmm. spiritual formation. And then, I guess, so in 2014, I had my son, Austin, who's now three. And just before he was born, one of our um, fellow pastors on staff, Chris Pollock, who is the executive pastor of um, youth and children's ministry, shared a vision that God had been putting on his heart about planting a church in the midtown, downtown area of Oklahoma City. Mm. And with my own experience of my my dad planting a church and then being a part of a church plant in college, like my heart just leapt into my throat. And mm. I was like, this is really good. And jumped on board in praying and um after Austin was born and I was kind of back to normal life for a little bit, hosted prayer meetings in our house and would just always talk to him about like 
how's it going and what's the next step and all this kind of stuff. And um, I guess I'm a little bit dense because um, it took me a while to figure out that I was so excited about it because God was calling me to be a part of it too. (laughs) And um, really, for some reason, that took me a while to to wrap my head around. But once I finally did, um, it was so clear to me that God had been orchestrating this from the very beginning. When I moved out here in uh, August of 2010, we settled in, you know, um, Oklahoma City suburbs out like north of Bethany. Mm-hmm. And it didn't totally feel like home to me. I'm used to um, winding streets and big tall trees and sidewalks and yeah. people having different mailboxes. And I don't know, it just, it felt like I made peace with the fact that our first home that we purchased was in a subdevelopment and it looked like half the other houses in our neighborhood. And I was like, well, that's just where we are for this period of, in our life. And there's nothing wrong with that. And, mm-hmm. you know, and then one day, like I went to this um, yoga studio close to downtown and which, by the way, I fell in love with, and like that has been my place and my people since right after we moved here. Oh. And I decided to take the long way home and rove through a neighborhood that I didn't know existed of like old, beautiful houses with individual architecture and oh. big, tall trees oh. and sidewalks. And I was like, ah, this exists out here. Oh. This is so good. And so fast forward, um, and I found out that God had been preparing me to actually come to that part of the city as a pastor and already had a network of relationships through the yoga studio and the coffee shop next door that were like my second and third homes, you know, on the weekends. And um, so everything just kind of fell into place. And I was like, oh, my gosh, God has been at work. And so Chris and I started working together together. dreaming and planning and uh, just figuring out what it would look like to start a new congregation Mm. on that side of town. And it was a very different, it's a very different culture than Bethany is. And I think it's probably true. I mean, if you're not familiar with, if someone listening isn't familiar with Oklahoma City, I think it's probably true in a lot of urban areas that um, the places in the center of the city just have a different feeling and a different group of people yeah. and a different atmosphere than than other places do. There's just a lot more diversity of thought and economic diversity and um, even cultural diversity, although in other places it's probably even more so than Oklahoma City um, ethnically and racially. But um, anyway, so from the very beginning understood that we needed to take a posture of um, almost like missionaries coming into a new space. And so started working together on that in uh, 2014, like the fall, and then um, started meeting with our core team um, the beginning of 2015 and launched the new church November 29th, 2015. Our first Sunday was the Mm -hmm. first Sunday of Advent. Wow. On purpose. Yeah. That had been part of Chris's vision originally, just to imagine what it would mean for a new church to come into the city at Advent mm. and to embrace our own understanding of ourselves 
in the way of God who doesn't always come in the way that we expect, but always in the way that we need. Mm-hmm. And what would it mean for a church to embrace that and also try to to be that for yeah. a city? So the last um, two years, that's been almost three years now um, since we started collaborating together and looking toward what that would look like. Um, that's kind of been what I've been all about. Um, and in the meantime, we moved um, to that part of the city and live in a historic home that we had to almost completely gut and mm. redo right <laughs> before we could move in. But even that has been a great, great experience. Love our neighbors, love having a front porch, love having sidewalks and a park, and love mm. being able to engage more. I think that was the biggest difference is that because there are sidewalks and porches and parks um, and there's more of a walking, biking culture, people mm. are outdoors yeah. and you see one another. And it just allows you to be – You don't. it doesn't force you to be. There's always escapes from being fully present in any place, but it gives more opportunity yeah. if you're looking for that to be fully present and to develop those relationships. So mm. that's been – really awesome um and yeah so that's that's where i serve now so just a couple questions about midtown because i'm just curious um flesh out a sunday at midtown and and maybe how that might look and feel different from a church in bethany or the church that planted midtown church of the nazarene like what have you tweaked about the practical weekly service that is catered to your fresh culture there? Um, actually, I don't feel like we've done anything to cater. Well, it meets in the evening. Yes, it does. But that was a little bit more out of, okay, so back up and I'll answer your question and then how I feel like we came to these things. Yeah, go for it. Um, and I don't, I just, the reason I even corrected you, and I'm sorry for doing that, is no, because... Don't. The whole time we've been really aware of consumerism mm. and the cancer that that is yeah. to spiritual development and growth. Mm. And so we've purposefully tried not to do a lot of catering. Mm. And we don't want to talk about it in that language because we're not trying to woo consumers from, we're not marketing ourselves, you know. Yeah, it totally makes sense. Against anything yeah, else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, we are within a culture and we do have a specific context. And mm-hmm. so we're trying to do that. So probably saying the same thing, just using different language. Sure. We do meet at 5 p.m. We meet in a, in a Presbyterian church mm-hmm. that has opened its doors to us. They've been fantastic neighbors. Oh. And um, they are a relatively new church themselves. They're about six years old and have, have inhabited an old building that used to be a Presbyterian church, but it was stopped being a church and they had to come in and do a whole bunch of stuff to it Mm. in the first place. And so, um, got to know this pastor and he was super on board with us. Um, they are PCA and so they're pretty conservative Mm -hmm. and do not recognize ordination of women. And so I was a little bit like, didn't know, you know, how that was going to go down. Yeah. And he has been super, uh, super excited and encouraging and affirmative of affirming of, of my ministry in particular, but our church and our vision. That's great. And so has opened the doors to us. So we meet there at 5 Mm PM 
And that was a little bit out of necessity because they meet in the mornings. But the more we thought about it, I mean, I, I loved the idea of having an evening service because one thing that I learned about uh, the Midtown culture and the people that I was spending time with in yoga and coffee shops and stuff is that they Sabbath really well. Mm. And they might not call it that. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, Sunday is like yoga class and brunch and long bike rides and Mm. parks with your family. And I saw the holy in that. Mm. I recognized that that's what it was. And there was nothing in me that wanted to steer people away from that. Yeah. There was nothing in me that wanted to say, we now interrupt your Sabbath time with (laughs) a hour and a half long service. And then you can get back to your regular program, you know? Sure, sure. And uh, so I loved, I loved that. And I feel like it actually does fit. It fits us well. And because we've now been doing that for two years, I'm starting to Sabbath well. Mm. Sundays are actually a day of rest. Now, when you're preaching, <laughs> it feels different. And you preach every other week? No, not quite. Oh, right, we, okay. It's not always, it's not really that strict. But usually Chris will preach for quite a few weeks in a row, and then he'll take a break, and I'll do three to four, two to three, four weeks in a row, and then go like that. Gotcha. Um Anyway, we uh, it feels not quite as Sabbathy when you're preaching, mm-hmm. but the fact that you have a long leisurely morning together as a family, or you can go mm-hmm. to yoga class, or you can go to your spin class, or you can take a long bike ride, or whatever it is that you do for recreation. Yeah, and then it just creates this um, anticipation for worship. It's beautiful, and we often have a meal together afterwards, whether we go out to restaurants or have potluck um, right there at the church mm-hmm. or. Um, you know, take in a summer concert down at Myriad Gardens or whatever. We, we try to do those kinds of things. Awesome. But the service itself, we intentionally wanted to, we intentionally wanted to have more of a, a liturgy, a set liturgy than what we had um, maybe experienced. I mean, there are places that we had experienced that, but not to the full extent of what we were hoping to capture. Mm. And I will just say this, a lot of what we set out to do, we didn't know fully how or why. We just felt like both of us had individually been gathering up these little scraps of like, if I could ever do just start from scratch, Mm. I'd like to try this or I'd like to do this. And we had the right theology and theory behind it, but we didn't like have a lot of practice in it. And so we didn't fully know. We were just like, let's just try it, you know? But come to find out <laughs> that when you design a, a worship service and a church calendar around the lectionary, mm-hmm. it's really good. Yeah. I recognize now as a pastor, I recognize the pastoral genius of walking through seasons mm. as a group of people. And so we walk through we walk through the Christian calendar together, and that's the majority of where our preaching comes from. Mm-hmm. And so that has totally shaped us. Mm. It's been awesome to go from Advent to Christmas, Epiphany, all the way through, mm-hmm. you know, Lent and Easter season and Pentecost and uh, ordinary time even. You know, it's all just, it's rich. Mm. And then soon you find that, Yes, there are seasons, but actually all the seasons are happening all the time. Mm. Like God is doing all of those things all the time, but the seasons help us 
understand Mm -hmm. what he's doing. And so it just continually brings us to new levels of awareness of what's going on all around us. It's so good. I love that. So that's how we, um, that's how we have kind of, uh, seen the big picture, the overall story arc of what Mm -hmm. we're doing. And the Mm -hmm. service, we have blended some old and new pieces. We do a responsive reading that we wrote every week as kind of our declaration of intent. This is why we're here and this is what we are about. And um, it starts off with saying we've gathered here to tell the truth, Mm. that we don't have our lives together and on our own we can't get our lives together. And we need God and we need each other. Mm. And so we wanted people to say out loud every single week, this is what we're here for. Yeah. And one of the reasons that I wanted that to be a part of our service is because at Bethany First Church, one of my roles as pastor was one of the pastors to celebrate recovery. Mm. And being a part of that community and watching how the liturgy, it's a very specific liturgy that's followed every single week. Mm. And celebrate recovery, but it is not dull. It is life-giving and it is valuable because it frames everything in that experience headed in one direction. And so I witnessed that that's what good liturgy can do. Mm. And that's what I wanted. I wanted a worship service. And I say I, I mean, Chris and I were both on the same page with this, but I wanted a worship service that was spiritual formation, Mm. that shaped people um, and you didn't have to try to like add spiritual formation in somewhere else. That's I wanted great. it to be all part. And the thing is, like anything that we do on a weekly basis for an hour or more at a time is going to shape us. Sure. So, you know, we don't have to create something that shapes us. But knowing that it shapes us, we wanted to be very specific in how we um, designed it so that mm-hmm. it would shape us in a certain way. Yeah. So the other element that we have is every week we have a story or a testimony. Yeah. (laughs) Throwback. Um, And we give people a guideline, um, and I help um, recruit and coach people through that process of what it it means to tell their story. Mm. And so every time somebody gets up, whether it's to tell their story or to do the responsive reading for the week, everyone says, hi, my name is... Mikhail, and I'm here because I needed a community Mm. or I whatever. And so there's that little piece of commonality that binds us all together. And so when when someone tells their story, then they're able to give that little introduction in an expanded form. Mm. And so for three to four minutes, um, they just tell us their story. And it can be um, anything as specific as a one-time event that they want to talk about or like the overall picture of God's work in their lives. And it's been, that has probably been one of the best things that we have done. Mm-hmm. It has it has given us um, a love for one another. Mm-hmm. It has allowed us to celebrate God's work. And it has also shared the responsibility of proclaimer beyond Mm. the preacher oh i love that everyone has the capacity to tell the good news of god Mm. because everyone is participating in god's story Mm. or and and so um that's been that's been really rich and really good and probably the third thing that is um unique to us um again 
not so much because of where we are, but because of who we want to be mm-hmm. and the kind of people that we want to be is every week we take three minutes to talk to each other mm. in service. And we give pretty clear parameters of what that looks like. Yeah, tell me about that. So we call it the three-minute drill or the three-minute practice. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the responsive reading, the person um, giving the responsive reading gives the instructions. And so they can put that in their own words if they choose. But most of the time they just read the script, which is fine. I'm okay with that. Um, but we say that we talk about all of these things. We've just, in this responsive reading, we've just talked about who we want to be. We talk about the fact that we want to be good neighbors. Mm-hmm. And we want to have real conversations and real relationships. And we want to learn how to help one another in real ways. Like mm-hmm. this is the meat of life that we're wanting to get at. And so we've talked about these things. And now we take on practices to help us become these kind of people. And so we say, look around the room and find someone that you maybe haven't seen in a long time or you haven't ever really talked to, although you've seen them, maybe you find someone that you've never seen before in your life. And you go to them and you introduce yourself and you tell them, you have 90 seconds Mm. to tell them who you are and why you're here and what you love and a little bit about your life. And then it switches and that person has 90 seconds to tell you those things. And then at the end of that three minutes, you know, there's a there's music that plays and we come back together and, and finish, um, move on to the next thing in worship. But that has shaped us. That has, um, you know, when, when we all started, there were about 60 people that came with us from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene. And then we gathered some other people from various places. Um, and so uh, when we first started gathering before we launched the church, we realized that even though a lot of us had had similar backgrounds, we didn't know each other. Yeah. And how could we possibly invite new people into something that felt like a community among people that hadn't experienced community yet with one yeah. another? And was this really like, hmm, this is a quandary. How are we going to do this? And so we devised this routine and actually we started doing that every time we gathered and then the first time we actually had a worship service um we had like a practice preview worship service and we didn't do that Mm. for the very first one and chris and i came back together and was like why did that feel weird like why did it feel why did it have this disconnect of like it didn't feel like the other things that we had done before we were the same group of people in the same room but there was now music and preaching and it felt different why Mm. And we came back to the realization of like, oh, we didn't do the three-minute drill. Mm. Maybe that's supposed to be a part of our DNA. Mm. And it has been. I love that. And some people don't. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Got to be honest. Right. Some people really struggle with that. And um, we've just had to be like, you know, I understand. We're introverts and extroverts. And, some, you know, if, if it gives you too much anxiety, like, by all means, don't participate. Yeah. But we do this because we want to be a certain way. Mm. And we recognize that we can't be the people that we want to be without some level of uncomfortability mm. along the way. What advice would you give to a young pastor who feels like maybe God is calling them to plant a church? Mm. What might you say or how might you coach them in that moment? Hmm, so many things. Uh, first, I will say that we need church planters. Mm. Absolutely. We need new churches. We need more 
small local churches, mm. in my opinion, then we need big mega churches that bring people from miles around. And it's harder to do it that way in a lot of in a lot of ways. But I think if we fully understand what Jesus was doing in the incarnation and what he's calling us to do as bearers of that, mm. smaller is better. Mm. I don't just mean like smaller in numbers, but I mean smaller in like the geographical area that you're trying to know and be present in. Yeah. You can't know and be fully present in the lives of people spread over a 30-mile radius. Right. You just can't. Yeah. And it's even hard to do that um, within a two-mile radius. Mm. But there is something so urgently necessary in being present in a place and knowing people in that place and pastoring the people of that place. So if you're being called to plant a church, yes, we need you. Find um, people that are ahead of you in the process and doing it well and ask a ton of questions. Mm. And Chris and I are open to those questions too, but we are certainly not the only people doing it. So my first thing would be find people to learn from. Yeah. And then secondly would be if you have a particular place that you feel like God is calling you already, spend as much time as you can there. Mm. Get to know that place. Pray in that place know the people of that place. And the more time you're in that place, um, I think the more God will equip you to be the pastor of that place yeah, and to dream the dreams of those people there. Mm. And it really is kind of thinking with a missionary mind and a missionary heart. And then from there, I mean, I think one of the things that um, Chris knew early on is that he wanted... He used the word launch very particularly, very intentionally, because he didn't want us to start a church and not know when we actually were a church or, you know, we were meeting in a home, but then somehow suddenly we transitioned. And he he wanted there to be a launch date so that everyone knew this is what's happening. Mm-hmm. And um, he had this... Um, vision of launch because there was a lot of energy moving up to that point and you launch like like a rocket there's a reserve of fuel and energy all pointing in one direction so you can actually get off the ground yeah rather than maybe drive to get to catch enough speed and then one day like get flight Mm. um and so there's multiple ways of conceiving of that and there's multiple kinds of churches for every context so this is what we envisioned in our context. We wanted to be a brick and mortar church because we think that buildings are important places for gathering, but then also for sending. Mm. And we believe that um, a building is an important um, structure for a community. And uh, we wanted to be known in the community. So that's kind of what we envisioned. Um, We do have, house elements so I know that there's a lot of people that want to do house church and we kind of do that in our parish groups Mm -hmm. and we call them parish groups specifically because they are within smaller parishes of our larger parish so Mm -hmm. we meet by neighborhood Um, so we've tried to capture a little bit of both so with that in mind my 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 suggestion would then be to a church planter is to start thinking about what you need for launch what do you what do you envision um, and and how are you going to get there? And I would 
encourage them. This was great advice that we were given from our Presbyterian friend to not set so much um, a timeline of dates Mm. as you set mile markers of like, in order to have a service starting on this date, we need these three or four teams up and operational and we need people trained in children's ministry and we need, so think about those terms of like mile markers. And Mm. then if it happens on the date that you want it to happen, more power to you. (laughs) Right. But you've got to have certain things. So think about the mile markers first. That was really great advice. Yeah. The other thing that a lot of church planting books don't talk about, they, they often talk about like the need for a worship leader and a children's pastor or minister right away. And, and we found that those are really important things. But in talking with church planters who after the fact, um, you know, would say, well, here's something I would do differently. Um, to a T, almost, they said, I wish I, I needed to think about or we needed to think about spiritual formation and discipleship earlier. Mm. God is just really good because there's no way that I was ever going to be a worship pastor or a children's pastor. Sure. <laughs> and so that, those are the things that I think about. Yeah. That's just what it... And so... After a few of those conversations, it became very apparent to us, like, oh, this is why God put us together as the team to start this church. Um, Because I thought from the very beginning about what does it look like to form people Mm. intentionally to look more like Christ? Yeah. And what are the practices that we start at the very ground level? And so before we even had regular worship services, we had parish groups. Mm. And I trained leaders and and had people invite one another into each other's homes. And that has been, aside from like those three elements that I was telling you about in the service, I would say parish groups is what makes our church. Yeah. That's what makes us who we are. Mm. I think we could have really great services Um and we do intentionally try to make our services spiritually formative, mm-hmm. but it's unpacked in the homes. Yeah. And every week we have discussion questions and practices that we do together in homes and that we talk about based on the Sunday services. But that's where the rubber meets the road. Yeah. That's where life happens together. And we have seen miraculous things like jaw-dropping, amazing amazing things happen Mm. within those relationships. And so that is by far and away what I would tell church planters is start there. Yes, a worship pastor is important and children's ministry is important, absolutely. Um, And we have needed those things. We just finally, yesterday, were able to announce that we hired our first children's ministry director, who we hope will um, grow into pastor as well. But we've found that that we're able to we were able to get this far. We wanted someone earlier and just felt like God it just wasn't right. But we were able to get this far with volunteer and with both of us kind of giving what we could. But we couldn't have gotten this far with a volunteer effort toward um, spiritual formation. Hmm. The 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 amount of work that it takes to do parish groups well to train new leaders, to write the curriculum. And then I've also, we've done two spiritual formation retreats um, now. Since we don't have weeknights available, people meet in their parish groups during the weeknights, so we don't have like a Wednesday night Bible study or something like that. So we've done the spiritual formation retreat route instead. So all of those things, thinking about how you form individuals, that is what 
enables us to live into whatever vision we have for the church God has given us. It's individuals being formed into the likeness of Christ Mm -hmm. who are then able to go and do what he calls us to do. And so if you start with those pieces, um, I, man, I think, I think it's good. Maybe the last thing I would add is it's, I don't know how people do this alone. Hmm. And I would strongly recommend people planting churches with partners or teams. Because my husband Brent and Chris and Holly, his wife, um, I, I, don't, I don't know how one of our families would have done this by ourselves. Hmm. And my dad did. Um, he gathered a team around him, but he was the only pastor for yeah. a long time. But goodness, it is exhausting hard work. And um, I wouldn't want to do it. I would encourage you and, and encourage you to pray for a partner and or a team that can not just work with you to plant the church, but to pastor yeah. with you. Oh, that's great. It's good stuff. Uh, well, the last question I ask everybody is, um, what inspires you to stay in the Church of the Nazarene? What do you feel like it is that's keeping you here? Well, I'm here because this is literally my family, like both genetically and <laughs> and spiritually. I, I said earlier that while I was in seminary, I didn't go to Nazarene Theological Seminary. So I was with a whole bunch of different denominations and mm. was able to, for the first time, really um, think critically and outside of the Nazarene world about the Church of the Nazarene and who we were and why I wanted to be a part of it. And um, that was a really good process. Mm. And I gained a lot of uh, even more admiration for who we were, who we are. I think that I'm, I love where we have come from. I love our history and our heritage. I love that we started as a movement of holiness for all people that included all people, that was for our, all people, that could be heralded by all people. Mm-hmm. And I think that that really captured the bigness, if I could say it that way, of God's salvation mm. desire. Yeah. So I love that that's where we have come from. And I, I think a lot of us are aware that somewhere in the middle of the last, you know, century, we lost our way a little bit. Yeah. And I think we're finding it again. I think the Lord, by his grace, the spirit is breathing new life and is waking up us to an under, a new understanding of what it means to be holiness people. Mm. Um, a holiness that is so much bigger and so much more beautiful than a set of rules that is life-giving and that is hopeful because, goodness, what, what hope is there if we can't hope for transformation? Yeah. What hope is there if we can't conceive of a God who is so holy that he can only share what he has with us Mm. in order to make us something that we're not. That is the best news ever. Yeah. Like, why would I not want to be a part of this? And I Mm. see more and more, I see more and more evidence of the spirit stirring people up to this excitement and understanding Mm. of, of himself 
and of um, of who the church can be and who the church ought to be. Yeah. And I'm full of hope. I'm full of joy when I have conversations with other pastors who are wanting to to start a new church or to envision a new way of preaching holiness or um, what it means to to be a holiness people within a very specific context. Those are all awesome conversations. And I get to be a part of enough of those that, yeah, I'm I'm very, very sure that uh, the Spirit of God is moving and at work, even in the people called Nazarenes. I love that. If somebody had a question about being a woman in ministry or planting a church, where could they reach you? How could they find you? Absolutely. I'm on Facebook. Um, you can find me there. Also, my email address is my first and last name, Levine, OKC at gmail.com. And our church website, if you have questions about our church, you might be able to find some information there first. And that's midtownchurchokc.org. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much.